This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for August 28, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Ended by challenging you to begin to look at your life and things that you are confronted with and ask yourself in the decisions that you make, am I being conformed to this world or am I being transformed by the renewing of my mind? Am I being driven by what the world tells me is necessary and right and good or am I being um, led through God's eyes, seeing the world through the kingdom's perspective? This week, the story continues, and I suspect that um, if you're like me, you found that sometimes you actually do look at things through God's eyes, and sometimes you then go right back to doing it the same old way you'd always done. Now, that's not terribly unusual. We see the same thing in, with Peter. Uh, today's story follows immediately after last week. Remember last week, he had, uh, Jesus said, who do, men say that, uh, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, before that, he had his name changed from Simon to Peter, the rock, the faith upon which God would build his church. Well, now Jesus <clears throat> begins to teach his disciples. Now, <clears throat> there's some things you need to know, he says. We're going to go now to Jerusalem. But when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be tortured by the leaders there because they're not going to like what I have to say. <clears throat> and eventually, they're going to kill me. And then on the third day, I'll rise from the dead. Peter's going, what is he talking about? Lord, come here. Come here, come here. I love it. It says he took him aside. Did you ever think, I'm going to take God aside. Come here, God. <laughs> we need to talk. Yeah. It was nice that he didn't do it in public, wasn't it? And he says, God forbid it, Lord. This will never happen to you. Now, you can understand Peter's dilemma. He loves Jesus. Why would he want to see him tortured? I mean, Jesus is everything to him. He's given up his whole life for him. Think about it. He has left his business. He's left his wife. He even left his mother-in-law. Imagine what happens if it, Jesus dies and he has to go back home. I mean, it's not going to be pretty, is it? When he gets back, I mean, she's going to say, I told you he was worthless. I told you he'd never amount to anything. I mean, you can almost see what is coming. And so he has some self-interest here, but he also has a great deal of love because he didn't just do it easily. I mean, you don't give up your entire life to follow someone. And for him to be telling you now that, by the way, when I get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. Well, in Peter's mind, that's it. That'll be the end. And Jesus then says to him, get behind me, Satan. The biggest rise and fall of any CEO in history. Went from, from being the rock upon which the church will be built to being Satan incarnate. You know, all within a few hours. And so... Jesus then says something very interesting. He said, your mind is set on worldly things, not on heavenly things. Now, did you notice that that's the exact opposite of what he said when Peter had confessed him to be the Christ? When, when Peter had confessed him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, it is not flesh and blood that is revealed to this to you, but rather my Father in heaven. And it is on this that I will build my church. Well, now it's the opposite. 
It's not my Father in heaven who is helping you to see these things. You've already gone back to seeing things in a worldly way. And if you're like me, that happens to you too. I mean, it's easy to get back into what we know, isn't it? To what's comfortable, to what, even if it's not pleasant, at least we know how it goes. And with God, things don't work that way. I mean, Peter liked the part where he got to be the Pope. He didn't like the part where he got to be Satan. You know, he didn't like the part where Jesus was going to die. And a lot of times I hear people say, well, you know, if I lived in biblical times and I had the kind of signs they had in my life, it would be different for me. And I always think, really? That would be interesting. Well, let's look at today's Old Testament story. You got Moses. Now, a little background. Moses had been uh, put in a basket um, in, in the Nile, and, and the, the princess of Egypt had adopted him into her household. He was Hebrew, and they knew that he was Hebrew, but, but he had been raised as a prince of Egypt, a lesser prince, but nonetheless part of the royal household. He was probably on the 143rd in line for the throne or something. And so, you know, he had a very privileged life. He went to all the big rituals and festivals that they had. I mean, anything he wanted was his. And one day he was out, and he saw an Egyptian guard beating a Hebrew slave. And he kills him. He becomes so enraged. Now, you may wonder, well, why is that a problem if he's a prince of Egypt? Can he get away with it? Well, he might have, honestly, except he was a Hebrew. And that would be like turning against the people who adopted you to help the people who you had left. And so he knew what the sentence for this was going to be. It was going to be death. And so he runs away. He runs out into the desert. And, and when he's out there, he runs into a nice young lady um, who's, and he's fortunate in marriage because he marries the lady who's the, her father's the head of the tribe, the patriarch of that group. His name was Jethro. Um, not the same one the Beverly Hillbillies, though, but a different one. Um, and Jethro sort of takes him in and gives him a job, and eventually he marries this young woman, and, and they kind of settle down, and he's being, having a nice job as a sheep tender. And, you know, he went from living in lavish luxury to living in the desert in tents, but, but, you know, he had plenty to eat, and he was safe, so it was good. And so one day he is out, you know, doing what he does. He kind of wanders around and tends the sheep because... In the desert, there's not a lot of grass for the sheep to eat, and there's like a clump here and a clump over there and a clump over there, and the sheep tend to follow clumps, and they can wander off if you don't pay attention to them. So, so he's in, it can't be like really stimulating work. I mean, I don't think it's really challenging particularly. And he notices off in the distance that, that a bush has caught on fire. Now, in and of itself, that's not too unusual because it's in the middle of the day and it's in the desert. Now, if you're in the desert in the middle of the day, it's very hot. So I imagine brush fires are not terribly unusual. And so this bush is on fire. He goes, oh, look at that. And, you know, a long time goes by and he says, that thing's still on fire. Not, you know, what in the world kind of wood is this? It burns that long. If I can get some more of that, my father-in-law's going to like this. You know, we, we, we won't have to go hunt wood all the time. Just how great he'll be. I mean, he's really excited. And as he goes over towards me, he's like, i got to check this out. And he goes to find out what's going on with the bush. And as he gets there, he hears, Moses! I was like, Bill Cosby. <laughs> Who dat? <laughs> you know, he's kind of, huh? And so he, he thinks somebody's 
hiding in the rocks or something. You know, no, obviously, it's someone who knows him. So he kind of goes, weird. Moses! He says, who, who's there? It is I, the God of your ancestors. Take off your sandals. Now, think about this. Where is he? And what is it like in the desert in the middle of the day? And what's the sand like in the middle of the day? And what's amazing is he not only takes off his sandals, but it says that he hides his face. Literally, what that means is he fell and buried his face in the sand. He did obeisance. Now, he knows what gods are like. He was raised in Egypt. Gods are powerful beings. You don't mess with them, particularly Egyptian gods. You know, he knows Osiris and Seth and, and all these different gods. And you find a god, you're in trouble because they don't generally associate with mere mortals and they generally want something. So grovel. It's your best bet. So here he is with his nose in the sand. He's taking his shoes off. And the, and the bush says to him, I am sending you to Egypt to tell Pharaoh that you will lead my people out of Egypt. Now, you have to think Moses got to be going, this, I hope, is a joke. Because the minute I get back to Egypt, I'm dead. <laughs> I mean, it's all over with. You got the wrong guy. I don't know who you've been talking to, buddy, but, you know, sorry, I, you know, that, that isn't going to work. And so God says to him, all right, I'll give you a sign. We like signs, don't we? Something that proves to me that this is legitimate. Here's the sign. After you have led my people out of Egypt and you come back here, you will worship me here. There's your sign. Would that satisfy you? So in other words, if you go there and if you live and you get back, then you get to worship me. That way you'll know it's true. And somehow or other, he's thinking, well, obviously that approach isn't getting me anywhere. <laughs> so he tries a different one altogether. He says, well, if I went to the Hebrews and said that I'm supposed to, their God sent me to lead them, you know, who, who am I going to tell them sent me? Who are, who, what's your name? I mean, who are you? And God gives him an answer. He says in, in the English, I am. Always sounds so dramatic, and I am. Except that... It, we don't really know how to translate it. It could be I am. It could be I am who I am. It could be I will be who I will be. I always thought the best translation is Southern, which I'll be whoever a darn will please. Because that's really what it means. I, I am who I want to be. You don't get to decide. You know, I am me. I name things. You don't name me. And so imagine this. Moses gets to go to Egypt to tell his half-brother, or his foster brother, that, oh, by the way, I've been sent back. I know you were supposed to execute me and all, but I need to, you know, get the people of the Hebrews, and I'm going to lead them. We're all going to leave now. So, be nice knowing you. See you later. And then he's got to go over to the Hebrews and say, all right, everybody gather around. Here's the deal. You know, I am whoever I darn well want to be sent me to tell you that we're all going to leave. Great call, right? Don't you just love signs? And they said, well, how do you know that this was really God? Because he told me that when we get back there, we can worship him, and that'll be our sign. Oh, good. 
Moses goes on to try other things too, saying, well, you know, I'm really not a very good public speaker. And, you know, he has all sorts of reasons. Eventually, though, he does end up going there. But can you imagine what it was like that day? He says, okay. So he goes and he puts his sandals back home, and he comes home, goes into the tent, and his wife greets him with a kiss. Says, hi, honey, how was your day? Oh, it was interesting. Oh, did anything special happen? Well, yeah. Well, like what? Well, I met God. You met God? Yeah. What did he look like? Like a bush that was on fire. God looked like a bush that was on fire? Yeah. What did he want? He wanted me to take my shoes off. God wanted you to take your shoes off? Yeah. Well, what was this God's name? I am whoever I darn well want to be. Oh, and by the way, he wants me to go to Egypt and take the Hebrew people out. Can you imagine that conversation at dinner that night? And I'm sure that wasn't popular. And furthermore, his father-in-law isn't going to like it either. Because he works for him. And now he's going to leave and go back and do all this? And yet we know how it ends up, don't we? It looks impossible by worldly standards. There is no way that this Bedouin now who lives out in the desert could possibly go to Egypt and convince somebody who already is at, you know, pronounced a death sentence on him to let all of their property leave Egypt, because that's the way they thought of the Hebrew slaves, as their property, and, and just go, oh, sure, I'm fine, have a nice day, and that's all fine. I mean, there was no way this was going to work, but he did it. Why? Because he saw things through God's eyes not through worldly eyes. Because as far as the world is concerned, that can't happen. I mean, it doesn't work. But with God, all things are possible. God said, for me, this is the way we'll do it. Now, our problem with it is is that we like the idea of following God. We just oftentimes don't know how to go about it. So I'm going to give you three basic steps to help you know how to follow God. And they're pretty simple. The first one is recognize him. Know he's there. Because until you acknowledge him, you're not going anywhere. I mean, if you don't believe that God is in the parking lot while you're looking for a parking place, you're probably not going to find out from him where one is, are you? Because why would he bother? Because you don't even know he cares. So first of all, you have to see him. And if you think about it, that's exactly what happened with Peter, isn't it? It's when Peter recognized who Jesus was, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he began to see things differently. It's the same with Moses. When he recognized that the bush in front of him that was on fire was God, things began to change. Now, in and of itself, that isn't going to make all the difference. I have to tell you, I wish it would. Wouldn't that be great? But it's not that simple because the next step you have to take is much harder. And that's that you have to trust him. You have to trust him. That he actually has good for you in store. That he actually wants what is in your best interest. And that whatever he leads you into, in the long run, even if not in the short run, but in the long run, will be good. Now, that's a lot harder because, you know, we we don't mind trusting God all that much except that we'd like to have a little explanation about what's happening. So what we really want 
is for God to say, here is the master plan. First, you're going to do this, then you're going to do that, and then you're going to do this, and then you're going to, when all this, you complete all of these steps, and then this is what's going to happen as a result. There's only one problem. God didn't do that. Did God tell Moses how the people were going to be let go by Pharaoh? Actually, did he even tell them that they were going to be let go by Pharaoh? All he said is, I want you to go there and do that. So to trust God really means taking that step out into the unknown. And oftentimes out into what seems to be very contradictory to what the world will tell you is possible. It means taking that chance and and saying, okay, I'm going to do that. Because that's where real trust comes in. It's easy to, you don't really have to trust if you understand everything. I mean, if you really get it and, and know exactly what the steps are and exactly what you have to do, there's no trust involved. I mean, you're competent. I mean, if you go into surgery, you have to trust the doctor, don't you? Do you think the doctor has to trust the doctor? No, the doctor's been trained. They know what they're doing. I guess they have to basically trust themselves, but they're not sitting here going, gee, am I going to suddenly forget how to perform the surgery today? I mean, they know the steps. But you have to trust. It's the same thing with God. He doesn't take you you know, through the whole thing at the beginning. He takes you to the first step. Because part of the accomplishment of God's will is to take that step of faith, to trust that he really is faithful, that he really does know what he's doing. Now, the third step follows along with that, but it gets complicated for us. And that's it. You have to do what it is he tells you to do. Now, for some reason, we have a terrible time with that. 